Hey, you kids, hush up. Can't you hear Marvin's own? Hello and welcome to Say It Loud. Thanks for tuning in today. Your presence is a phenomenal presence present that I am truly grateful for. Like all social media platforms, your follow, like, and subscriptions, comments also are greatly appreciated. Sharing is also allowable, encouraged, and cherished. You are in for a treat for sure. My guest today is the president and CEO of the Michigan Science Center, and they are doing some amazing things right now. In fact, the Michigan Science Center made it to the finals of the USA Today 10 Best Science Museums Reader's Choice Awards. They are currently number four, and you can vote multiple times. The contest ends pretty soon, I think in about a week, and I'll add the link uh, to this episode so you can go ahead and vote for them. My guest's name is Mr. Christian Greer. He is the senior nonprofit executive, change leader, and community connector with more than 25 years of relatable experience. He has been here for two years. Before Detroit, he was in St. Louis. He is currently working on his doctorate, and he's a Morehouse grad a father, a husband. I'm sure I'm leaving out some one of his titles. <laughs> Welcome to Say It Loud, and thanks so much for the opportunity to have this conversation. How are you today, Christian? Marvin, I'm great. I appreciate being on your show. I've uh, been excited about doing this with you, and I'm excited to jump into the questions and have some conversation. Now, I initially hooked up with Mr. Greer on LinkedIn a few months ago. I saw, I saw you on TV a while back, and then when I saw you, I was like, I thought, man, that would be a great guest. I can't remember exactly what I saw, uh, what you were doing at the time. It was a couple of months ago. Uh, and then recently, one of your posts mentioned that the Michigan Science Center had become a Smithsonian affiliate. That sounds like an amazing honor. Can you tell me what all that entails? Yeah, being a Smithsonian affiliate is, a, an, uh, is an honor, and it's an opportunity for us to be able to connect more broadly with the museum field. And uh, the Smithsonian Institution, uh, which is based out of Washington, D.C., um, com is composed of 19 museums and galleries. It's hard to imagine there's so many of them. Perhaps you've been on the mall, you walk down to Air and Space or the American Museum or the Holocaust Center or the um, the National Museum of African American History and Culture, which is down there, opened just a few years ago. Uh, but they have 19 museums and, and galleries. They have nine different research facilities. People may not know that they do a lot of research, not only on their collections, but on 
you know, areas of science and, and other, uh, other things, history and such. And um, 6,000 employees, they have 500 scientists. It's the world's largest museum system. And to be able to be a connector to that uh, through the Michigan Science Center, the people of Detroit is an honor, is a privilege. And it's something that we applied for during the pandemic. So it's hard to imagine that we were able to accomplish that during that time. Um, and uh, one of the significant things, Marvin, was when we applied last year, one of the stipulations to the requirements of the application said that you had to be open, a facility oh, that wow. was open, you couldn't be closed. And at the time, you've got probably 90 plus percent of all the science centers around the country were closed. I wanted to make sure that we were reopened as quickly as possible. And we opened before quite a few others. We, you know, we've been open since July 10th of last year. It's hard to imagine, but we've got a great team at the Michigan Science Center. We also go by MySci sometimes, and uh, they work really hard. They made it happen. And we've been open for the public and our community right here in Detroit and Southeast Michigan. So we're excited about that. And we're excited to be a Smithsonian affiliate. Okay, so I heard you say that, uh, that you're open. And I know that during this time, many schools take field trips to museums because of the hands-on experiences. How on earth are you accommodating all of these different types of uh, schedules and calendars uh, during the pandemic? Well, it's a complicated thing to do, so we try to keep it simple. Most organizations did what we did, and they just immediately went online and started broadcasting their program. So we launched a program shortly after we shut down. Incidentally, I, I made the decision to close the building. It was on Friday the 13th in March. Mm. Um, and we were trying to decide what day we needed to close down. And I was thinking, why don't we just pick Friday the 13th? It's perfect. You know, based on what was going on, uh, why not just go with the flow? And because uh, uh, luck wasn't in our favor after everything that really touched off with uh, COVID-19 and the pandemic. But um, while we were closed, we went through a lot of changes internally. You know, we had to do layoffs and furloughs. We had to cut budgets. We had to reframe our work and, and do some pivots, as they describe it, to try to be a little bit more agile and flexible to the situation. So we ended up launching a program called Echo Live. And Echo is, um, is a digital program that we hosted on Facebook Live. And we broadcast it also through YouTube. And then we posted on our website and other media channels. And incidentally enough, we got featured on the NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt. So <laughs> Lester uh, interviewed, and I'm from Chicago originally, so I grew up with Lester Holt as my anchor. Um, you know, before he went national, he was an anchor in, in, in Chicago. And so familiar face, we had a chance to have Anna Sterner, who is our uh, director of programs, be on that show. and do an activity with him and it, it just it was incredible you know to have a, an organization in Detroit to be featured at a national level you know a lot of people have different impressions about Detroit nationally and who we are and what we're all about so we're always looking for a reason and one-up somebody <laughs> and I know that's right center, you know like if we and, and uh, you know I know very uh, quite a few people at the national level and museums work with them and serve on the board of Aztec which is our association of science and technology centers but I'm up against some really heavy hit, hitting museums with a lot of bigger budgets. So if I get a chance to stick it to them just once and rub it in, <laughs> it, it's good. Cause you know, the, the one thing about Detroit is they underestimate us. And um, and and uh, we, we get underestimated as a people a lot of times, uh, you know, as a, 
as a black male. So I'm always looking for an opportunity to uh, show what we could do. I know that's right. So, so tell me about um, what was the what was the daily attendance like before the pandemic, and and uh, you know I know it's hands on right now. You've got people in there. What what types of things can the kids do right now? Because I'm sure there's a lot of reluctance with everything else going on right now. Can you give me just a little description of what that experience today looks like and what it might have looked like in the past, what's a little different and why it's safe to come on down right now? Absolutely, Marvin. Uh, you know, I have said this before in other interviews, and, and I think it's uh, apropos. Um, the uh, The thing about it is we're a science center, so if we can't figure out how to navigate um, the pandemic, uh, we should be setting example of how to do it. And, and we tried to do that. Uh, so, uh, but we needed to go above and beyond, not just what we thought would be the right approach, but also to work with the outside party. Um, and we connected with Midtown Inc. And partnered with the other museums on the cultural district uh, campus, right in Midtown Detroit, and we were able to work with an organization called NSF International, the National Sanitation Foundation. They're based out of Ann Arbor. Mm -hmm. We wanted them because this is their world to help us come up with a series of practices and protocols that were safe and sustainable that allowed us to be able to deal with the pandemic, both behind the scenes and in front of the scenes. That means keeping the staff safe, keeping them informed and informing uh, our security protocols and that sort of thing, just to make sure that we had everyone come in one entrance and out the next, they sign in, you know, we did temperature checks, that sort of thing. But we also did the same thing on the public side. So when we reopened, we required masks, we had hand sanitizer, Every, I don't think you can go more than 20 feet without a hand, uh, <laughs> hand sanitizer station. And we have uh, gloves that are available. So we tried to do the most, most we could. But one thing that I wanted to make sure that we did, and I know a lot of other museum leaders were hesitant about this, but we are a hands-on facility, as you mentioned. And that hands-on, minds-on interactivity is critical to the type of learning that we create. At the museum um, where we work, at the Science Center, um, the Michigan Science Center, we uh, have sort of a, a value proposition or a tagline that says, we put you at the center of science. So science is obviously our middle name, Michigan Science Center. But putting you at the center of science is not just getting you in the building and getting you in safely and having those experiences, but also putting you at the center of science in your mind from a cognitive standpoint, that this you feel like you have a science identity, that this is not just something that somebody else does. This is something you do as a human, comparing, contrasting, measuring, measuring modeling, um, hypothesizing, theorizing, you know, all these things that are science process skills or STEM process skills we need people to get. Well, how are you going to do that kind of exploration where you get to discover for yourself in an interactive exhibit during a pandemic. But, you know, I was I was a little bit skeptical of the fact that there was transmission or significant transmission um, on surfaces just by the way it spread. Now, I know the scientists couldn't come out and really say that without doing their due diligence because it was so important. But from a leader standpoint, I just kind of felt like there's no way that just by surfaces you could get this to spread all over the world if it wasn't airborne or aerosolized. So we just needed to make sure that we tried to protect people from the surfaces, but that they could still interact. So that was really important. Um, so one thing is um, critical to discuss is we, we are open, but we had to reduce our hours. So you asked what changed. 
um, or the days that we were open. So we normally would be just closed on Mondays during the during the week. Every other day we'd be open, but we decided to shut down for three days instead of just one during the week and be open on a Thursday through Sunday schedule, which has main, been maintained since we reopened on July 10th. Now, um, in terms of safety protocols, I'll give you just a quick story. Um, when we reopened, there were a few families that came in and they were walking around touching things. I didn't know if anybody would show up on that day, honestly, um, but they did show up. And right as the first groups of people were leaving for the day and then maybe they stayed about three hours before they went home, I asked um, a woman on the way out with a group of kids, hey, can I just ask you a question? She said, yes what made you think you know we did everything we could to keep this place safe for you but what made you feel confident that you could come out here because you don't know the protocols you, you went through we don't know you don't know that we work with nsf international and midtown inc you don't know that we have a 150 page like manual of practices and protocols that probably is an industry standard that we use to do this and you know she wouldn't have known in the future to this day so we're, we're talking about may 6 2021 We've been open, you know, uh, reopened almost a, a year, and we have not had one confirmed case of COVID-19 traced to us both behind the scenes or in front of the scenes with our guests. Knock on wood, so far. Right, right, and uh, right. so that means that what we were doing was working. But you know what she said? She said, well, we thought about coming out here, but uh, and we were a little bit apprehensive, but we're scouts. We're a scouting family. And the motto of the scouts is to be prepared. So we donned our PPE and got our masks and everything together and our and our hand sanitizer and we came out and I was like you know I love that STEM doesn't stop we need to be able to have people to navigate this now I'm not asking everybody to come out if they have fears of the virus or maybe they have an immune um, uh, system disorder that makes it challenging for them but for the people that could come out and did come out they were brave when you think about it um, but they wanted to make sure that they didn't miss out on certain aspects of the, of the world and the learning because learning online is just one facet of what kids could learn. So, yes, attendance is down for two reasons. One, people still have hesitancy um, in terms of coming into the city. And, you know, just in the last couple of months, we've had spikes of the variant 177, uh, B117 virus and some other variants of uh, SARS-CoV-2. So it's a little bit scary to think about that for folks, but they're also feeling cooped up in the house. So they're gonna have to make a choice eventually. And hopefully vaccines will give people the confidence. They still can wear their PPE. So that gives them a lot of extra coverage and definitely come out to the science center and have a good time. So I'm gonna ask this question. I plan on asking this last, but I'm gonna go ahead and ask this now. Cause I mean, my mind is just, I, I just, I want to know what's the funniest thing you've seen or heard a kid do at the Science Center? I'm pretty sure it's been some pretty unique things go on there. Oh my gosh. You know, I, I really, I really wish I had a lot of good stories. I'll tell you one. Uh, we had to rearrange the galleries when we reopened to make sure that we were requiring, um, were compliant with six foot distancing between groups. Um, so a lot of our exhibits got shifted around. If you haven't been in the Science Center in a while, you'll probably notice that it looks different. One, it looks cleaner. So we started our sort of on our cleaning and organizing way before the pandemic, but we got even really just religious about it when we uh, when we went through the pandemic situation. And so the, the, the space looks good. You know, we put in new carpeting, we've mopped and dusted, you know, the floors and 
exhibits and things like that. So it, it's it's been great. But um, because of that, we want everything to, to look good. And we have our clean team that goes around to make sure that everything is set up uh, properly. And they're in the yellow vests, almost look like uh, we have an airport theme. So mm -hmm. we decide when we reopened, because of the distancing, we decided to do it like air traffic control. And if you've watched planes come in on their approach um, in a traffic pattern, they have to maintain their spacings a couple miles apart, uh, you know, so that if anything happens on the runway, they can, you know, do a go around or whatever. And um, and that spacing is for safety. So we had that in the galleries. So we had an exhibit on the floor that was moved and one it was called, it's called a wind tunnel, but it's a wind tunnel that goes vertical. So it's a huge, huge fan that blows air through a bunch of straws to keep the air uh, in, sort of in a column and um, in a plexiglass shroud and the air goes up on the top. And the idea is that you can build things out of um, like a sheer material or coffee filters and pipe cleaners and stuff. And you can make parachutes and see how they fly and float in the space. And you just slip them underneath the plexiglass. They get into the stream of air from the fan and they float around, fly out, or maybe they fly all the way out. Well, some kid decided that this was a really cool thing. And he thought that the more stuff that I dump into this, oh, the more God. interesting it would be. Now, now, you're supposed to design to put one little parachute contraption or, you know, or hang glider sail just per person, right? It doesn't say that, but that's kind of the concept, right? Well, right. this wasn't good enough for this kid. So he goes around and picks up all the little pieces of paper, all the coffee filters, all the little things that he can find, and he starts stuffing them in there. And, um, and I wasn't really sure what he was doing because I was just walking through the galleries you know, headed to another meeting. I really wasn't paying attention to the activities that were happening on the floor in any particular way. But um, he goes and finds old brochures and wrappers uh, from things. And I I'll tell you, it was almost like a garbage can was stuffed in this thing. And I saw him do this and I said, should I go over there and stop this kid? And that that's going to take some time. Maybe I'll just come back later and I'll just clean it up. So I didn't want to make a big deal out of it. Then, right as I round the corner, I hear a countdown. 10, 9, oh, not eight, the countdown. 7. And I was like, what is he going to do? And, you know, the fan doesn't operate until you press the button. You know, so it's, it's not going to run all day. Otherwise, it, it would burn out. So, you, you know, you put your thing in there. And when you're ready, you press the button. So he presses the button. And Marvin, every piece of paper, every little thing that was in the science center on the floor or anywhere he could find it was in there just boom <laughs> exploded when he turned the fan on and things were everywhere and I think the parents were embarrassed they didn't know what to do and I just said you know what that's what it's about <laughs> you know, it yeah, was experimenting it, you know, it doesn't take me but a second to get a broom and clean all that up He'll never forget the opportunity he had to blow up something in the science center, so to speak, by putting all these, you know, lighter than uh, light objects in there, this wind tunnel and watching them blow out. And who knows, that kid might be an aerospace engineer or be the first person on Mars. You never know. Right. And so it teaches you that as a parent, as a teacher and an educator, I know you appreciate this as a longtime educator and principal. Yes. Sometimes you need to expand the envelope. You need to give kids a chance to do things the way they want to do them. Be creative and not hold them to the standard that we were held, even though, yes, we did walk 
10 miles in the snow, uh, you know, <laughs> to get to, to get to school. And uh, and our grandparents walked 20 miles into the snow to get to school. So in 30, uh, degree, now, in 30 degree weather. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 30, so, so 30 below. They'll just be dropped off uh, by drone, you know. Uh, but <laughs> but I think what's uh, what's exciting is that funny thing just taught me something. And that is, you know, kids can teach themselves. We sit around, spend all this money trying to help kids learn and they're learning our stuff in our way but they naturally know how to learn it may not be what you want them to learn um but there's a compromise there in somewhere there's some energy of curiosity of just being human no matter what the situation the kid is in and so can we have empathy from the way they see things can we put ourselves in their shoes can we just loosen the restrictions just for a moment for a kid to blow something up in the science center, you know, because that's what's going to stick. That's what's going to remember, uh, be re memorable for this kid and their family. And it gives you an opportunity to see what's possible. I absolutely love that story. Um, Christian and I had an opportunity to talk uh, in our pre-recording session. And we, we talked about um, this learning loss uh, that um, everyone is reporting and we talked similarly about what he just mentioned uh, the kids are going to find ways to learn it might not be in the cons the construct or, or context of what or how we want them to learn but they're constantly learning and these opportunities to take the blow the doors off of a school and the, the school type setting and uh, provide them with opportunities to to learn it's it's part of what I think is is the barrier, and and you put these roadblocks in front of the kids, and then they don't want to, to to explore what is learning, what is teaching and learning. That means that there's there's failures and successes, and we celebrate the failures and successes equally because you know you know that you can't do it anymore, it, it, or no, it doesn't work, as opposed to it being a big fat red F uh, on your paper. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think that was part of what uh, Christian and I, we felt like while we were talking, like, oh, my God, this is this is great information, you know, because we're, we're having so many problems with uh, with our, our, our kids, especially our African-American males, as it relates to uh, the structure of school. And uh, I just think that we've got to find a different way. The kids are learning. They know stuff. You know, I. Um, <laughs> I'm going to tell a quick story and then move on with my questions. But uh, early in the pandemic, the teachers were complaining that the kids were uh, locking them out of uh, and putting putting them on mute on, in uh, virtual settings and uh, doing all different kinds of things, things that the, the teachers didn't know anything about. The kids had just as much time on those uh, virtual platforms as the, the teachers had, but they had learned how to quote unquote beat the system already and so I just I thought that was the funniest thing because we're saying that there's learning loss but the kids know how to put you on mute and put you kick you out of a meeting you know so figured uh, that out. <laughs> they, figured, they figured that out real quick uh, so which Michigan Science Center accomplishment are you most proud of to this to this moment well, I mean, I think there's things to be proud of from a personal standpoint and things to be proud of from a professional standpoint. And I guess maybe what I'll pick is uh, a little bit of both. And we talked about it earlier. And that is reopening from a pandemic. 
Um, th this is obviously not my first rodeo from your <laughs> for your introduction in museums. It, it actually is 30 years this year since my first job as an intern's assistant at the Adler Planetarium and Astronomy at um, in Chicago. And uh, it's hard to believe it's been this long, but um, that's where I received my calling actually that summer. And um, it was, a, you know, if we get time to talk about it, I'll share that story as well. But um, my most uh, important accomplishment, I think, is just as a first year president and CEO, being sort of baptized by fire in this pandemic was an interesting challenge for me. And um, at no point was I really concerned about what we would do, because the one thing that and I know that sounds crazy, but I but I really had no fear in this because this was my first year. Like what so many things are going to go wrong, might as well just embrace them and learn from them because we don't really know what we're dealing with anyway. And as long as we don't do the things that normally organizations do um, that don't work and avoid <laughs> that, maybe we'll be OK. So I wasn't so much concerned about what I was going to do as much as I was trying to make sure that I had a good handle on the things that I wasn't going to do. And that's an important advice I think someone gave me is like knowing what not to do is equally as important sometimes in a leadership role, knowing what to do. So I would say being able to navigate that as a brand new president and CEO during that time um, with a board that didn't know me and I didn't really know them um, and a team that we're getting to know each other. But I think there's a sense of pride that when you are in the face of a real challenging time and a crisis. Um, you, you have you have to fall back on what you know how to do and you have to believe in yourself that there's a way to to, to achieve that level of success. And um, I did not spend a lot of time looking around because it was clear that most people didn't really even know what was going on. Even at the CDC, they were trying to figure it all out. And that created a lot of confusion early on. So I did fall back on my scientific sort of background and start to think, well, what do I think they might do or they might discover? And that was my way of hypothesizing and taking an experimental approach to our responses. I think that really helped. And to be able to get to the point where we could reopen and be one of the first museums to reopen, what a sense of pride. Because not only did we reopen early, I mean, we were only shut down 90 days. There's some organizations have been closed for 400 plus days, mm -hmm. um, uh, 90 to 100 days, somewhere in there. And um, But I wanted to be able to do it because Detroit was a hot spot. So many of your friends and family members and pe neighbors and people that you know have died right in this town as a result of COVID-19. Now, it might have been a, um, you know, a situation where they had other um, health issues, but what does it matter? You know, COVID was the trigger for it, just like you can have underlying conditions and stress can be a, a, a trigger. And our, and our community is under a lot of stress. That's what kills more than cancer, more than high blood pressure and all these things trace back to just the pressures that people are under. And um, so I wanted to make sure our team wasn't under so much pressure by giving them a pathway forward and say, hey, look, let's just do this. And I remember the one sort of core part of this pride was I told the team, whatever you do, don't blame COVID-19 for whatever happens. Mm. We have to figure out how to weather this storm and we're not gonna blame the storm we're going to blame the decisions that we make, good or bad, and live with them and focus on that. And looking back, that's all I knew what to do, honestly. 
looking back on it, I think that was probably the best decision I could have made because we never brought up COVID. I mean, I'm not saying we didn't bring it up to do the NSF and the right, sanitation right. Mm-hmm. And the process to get people in. We had to navigate that, but it was never an excuse as to why people aren't coming back or anything. We just had to navigate the situation. I mean, what does an engineer do? Do they do anything different? They want to know what are the requirements what are the problems I'm solved? And sometimes engineers, they have a little cop-out strategy if they can't solve a problem. Um, they reframe the problem. And <laughs> that's not a bad thing. It's mm-hmm. not. You know, If the problem is not solvable in the form that it's in, change the form and then try to solve it. A lot of times we don't do that very well with discrimination, with racism, with um, other kinds of unconscious bias, with you know uh, things that, that people do with microaggressions. We don't always look at that and reframe that because if you reframed it from the past of what Harriet Tubman went through, you wouldn't even complain about half the stuff that you go through every day. You just wouldn't. You know, if you think about your ancestors and what they did and how proud of us, uh, how, how proud they would be of us, of our accomplishments. It doesn't matter if somebody gave you a funny look on your way to graduation. <laughs> no, it don't matter to me. I'm going to tell no. you right Oh, you know, as a matter of fact, I want you to look at me <laughs> when, I, when they hand me my degree. Uh-huh. We have to have pride in ourselves. And I and I use that same thing, things I learned at Morehouse, things I learned growing up. Um, and what I think is really the, the grit of this city is, you know what? We can take it and we can dish it out. And um, dishing it out, hopefully, is our resilience. Hopefully, it's our accomplishments in Detroit. And hopefully, it means that Detroit can have a science center that they're proud of. I definitely. So you, you kind of answered it. I'm going to go ahead and, and reframe it a little bit. So, you know, maybe you can put a person with it or, or a story with it. But what inspired you to go into science? At the time of this recording, it is currently Teacher Appreciation Week. So I'm saying we truly appreciate all the teachers out there. Uh, and I just wanted to know, is there a particular teacher or and you mentioned that occurrence, but I want you to kind of go ahead and tell me that story that helped you uh, lead down uh, this path. Well, I'll say a couple of things. One, thank you, thank you, thank you to our teachers, our professional educators and people that just guide you through life, um, that share a little bit of their knowledge with you. And um, hopefully they can do it in a way that allows you to be able to make meaning of it. You know, in, in our circles in educational theory, it's called constructivism. Uh, where you can construct your own meaning out of um, uh, the the information that's in front of you, and people do it anyway. It's not it's not so much a something you're allowed to do. Um, you, you're going to make meaning of what's in front of you. Hopefully, you're making the right meaning. You're thinking critically about it. But what teachers can really do is, uh, you know, that that word teach. Um, I think it's Greek roots uh, to it means drawing drawing something out. You know, mm-hmm. a talent back in ancient times. Um, was considered a container that held water. And when you think about people pouring stuff into the pail, like lifting off the top of your head and pouring knowledge in, mm. it's actually, teaching is actually the opposite of that. I don't know why this gets confused, because we think of like, I'm going to teach you something, and that means I'm going to pour all this knowledge into your head so you can see the world the way I see it. Well, that's not a very emancipatory practice, you know, <laughs> the individual. What I think is, though, is drawing out the genius that's already inside these kids. You see it on the basketball court. Where'd that come yes. from? Oh, yes. You know, where did it come from? You know, oh, oh, the kid's just smart on the basketball court, but only academics. They're not. No, it's just the way that you, I mean, if, if you basically put 
the words that they were supposed to read on the backboard, they would have figured that out too. My kid <laughs> plays so many video games and I was like, I gotta, I gotta snatch this iPad out of his hands. I gotta tie this thing and put it under the bed somewhere where he can't find it. And then all of a sudden I go past the room and I hear a kid reading. And I was like, well, where was he going? And I go in there and because these video games have subtitles and he's playing these games, he's reading this whole thing. Mm -hmm. So the video game is teaching my son how to read. And I'm like, well, go on, boy. You know, <laughs> buy him some more video games if that's what it takes. Oh, yeah. but we would that, you know, because that's not how you're supposed to learn. Remember, like you're supposed to sit in a chair and sit still. How are you going to get a little boy or girl to sit still at their age? You know, they want to run around. They're embodied learners. Remember recess? They should have had the class outside, you know. So I think that teachers get a bum rap sometimes because they have to be in these scenarios where they're mm -hmm. teaching kids. What they really want to do is go outside and be under a tree and teach kids stuff and have them run around. I mean, if you're a smart teacher, you get them to run around first and wear them down, then they can sit down and they can <laughs> listen to you. But you, you get where I'm coming from, you know? So so education is important. Parents are our child's first teacher, so we cannot separate the teaching and education in the school from the parents. I mean, that that is probably the most fundamental thing that we need to get going, even when it comes to some of these charter schools that have these magical ways that they want to try to help kids learn, but they haven't really included the parents in that. In some cases, they push the parents out of the way and say, I'm going to show you how to teach your own child. And I get where they're coming from. Sometimes, you know, parents don't do everything they're supposed to do, including me. Um, however, if we don't have a parent or guardian or caregiver involved, and it may be a grandmother, it may be an aunt, but they, they have to at least acknowledge what's going on and help that kid recognize that school is important and learning is important and to own it. So yeah, shout out, uh, shout out to all the teachers that, um, that are there and just give you a little bit about my background. I come from a family of teachers. My wife is a college professor. Both my parents taught in Chicago public schools. My uncle was the superintendent of schools for Miami Dade. Um, I have two other cousins, um, Harvard grads and, uh, one went to Tufts. Um, that they're all teachers and educators. My my sister was a Cornell, another Ivy Leaguer. I'm the only one that's not an Ivy Leaguer. All right, <laughs> but um, so I, I'm I'm the dumbest one in the family, and I was a. You went to leader. Northwestern. That's 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 pretty close, brother. That's, yeah, yeah. that's no there's no flies on Northwestern. There you go. There you go. You know, but uh, you know, my pride is in the HBCU because you know we got to learn how to teach ourselves sometimes, and that's what HBCU is really all about. That's the history of it, and it's funny, isn't it, Marvin? We talked about this without going too off off the beaten path. How they all of a sudden back in vogue? What happened? I thought I thought just a few years ago they weren't. What are they outmoded? Do we do we still need HBCUs now? After George Floyd, everybody realizes. Oops. Things haven't changed too much, guys. We still need to own our own education. That doesn't mean you can't go to another school. I've gone to a lot of different schools uh, where I wasn't the, you know, the majority. But what I got out of Morehouse more than anything was just meeting other black men um, that are different from you. So there's a lot of different ways to be a black man and be successful. That's one of the most important things that kids can see. They sometimes only have one or two role models and they might be the bad, the, the, the wrong role model. But if they got a chance to meet more brothers and see that there's a spectrum of, how, of what we believe in, what we, you know, our political backgrounds, and there's a lot of diversity. We, we make it seem like diversity is anybody other than us. 
But um, there's a lot of diversity in our community. And when you go to a school like Morehouse, you realize that. And then you recognize that you can learn a lot from these brothers. And they may have a strategy that you've never used. That might be the thing you need in the boardroom or on the streets. Um, but it would be something that we can pass down to each other. You know, we were, we were shoulder to shoulder in the slave ships when we came over. Mm. And, you know, we're shoulder to shoulder in graduation. We always talked about Ooh. that. And um, but the important thing is, are we overcoming? Are we taking it to the next level? Would, would our ancestors be proud of us or would they look at us and say, I don't know what you guys, you guys obviously didn't realize what we went through just so that you can hang out in a corner and act a fool. Like, I'm and so and, and I'm not trying to diss because I hung out on the corner and I act a fool <laughs> just like everybody else. And if you drove by, you wouldn't think that I would be doing what I'm doing now. I wouldn't think that I would be doing what I'm doing now. But what it does show is the potential of these young kids and their learning potential. We have no idea what that potential is. You can't judge that just because you see them in one class or in one situation. So, hey, that was my potential. And for me, it was a calling. Uh, just I'll just tell you really quickly what happened. I was, uh, it was in 1991, uh, there was an eclipse. It was a total solar eclipse. It wasn't visible in totality from Chicago, but we had a partial eclipse that was probably about 60 or 60%, something like that, 60, 70%. And so anytime you have an eclipse, it's a special occurrence, you know, throughout history. You know, they, they could be good omens, bad omen, omens. It was just an amazing thing. And, and to, the fact that the ancients could predict eclipses would just, just baffles me. Um, but what I think is really important about it is it's always a symbolic thing on an eclipse. So I was working the eclipse on the floor and I was new, you know, this field. So I was a physics major and I studied astronomy and actually went to the planetarium as a kid. But um, I was working as an assistant to one of the other um, interns. And uh, so he was the one doing the presentation. We were in a gallery where we called our planet hall. And there was about 450 people in this gallery. And he was given a narration on a screen of the eclipse, what was happening. Okay, the moon is coming in front of the sun. This is a rare occurrence. It's going to block out because the moon is closer to us, the light from the sun. Then um, when that happens, you'll see a diamond ring effect. And then the solar prominences coming off the surface um, uh, will be visible. The light shining through the craters on the moon called Bailey be Bailey's beads will be visible. And then finally, when the moon covers the sun completely, the solar disk, um, you know, the moon is about 400. I mean, the sun, I think, is like 400 times bigger than the moon and the moon is um, but it's 400 times further away. And so it, it ends up that they lock up right uh, at the right, uh, you know, when, when during certain times for a total solar eclipse, the moon blocks out the disk of the sun. So you can see these streamers coming off the sun called the solar corona. Um, and that creates solar weather and, you know, interacts with our atmosphere to create auroras and stuff. But he was going through all this stuff. And uh, we were talking forever. And, and an eclipse is a lot like um, an evil Knievel stunt, you know, if you remember evil Knievel, it would take him like three hours, you know, just to roll up on the bike to, to make the jump and come back down. And you're like, when is it actually going to happen? So finally, the eclipse was about to happen as he was talking. He asked me to bring him some water, um, the intern, and I was his assistant. So I said, OK, I'll go get some water because he's been talking forever. He drinks the water, keeps drinking water. And before you know it, he has to go to the restroom. It just so happened he had to go to the restroom right as the eclipse was starting. So he's like, I'm going to take a break for a second. I'll be right back. So he hands the microphone right and puts it right in my chest. And there's a big thump. 
because I wasn't ready for it. So my hands are down to the side. There's a thump on my chest of the microphone. And he says, Christian, take over. And then he walks off. And, and so everyone who was looking at him now just looks right over at me. I'm this shy kid. I didn't know what I was going to say. So he said, oh, don't worry about it. Just tell him what you know. So, and you just heard some of the things that I knew at the time. So I go off and I slowly start talking, well, this is the moon, this is the sun. And, you know, these eclipses happen as you, you know, we're, we're revolving around the, the sun and the moon is revolving around the earth and blah, 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 blah. And they line up. And when that happens, you know, blah, blah. And so these people are into it. So I go on with this for about, I don't know, it took him a long time to get back because there were lines to the bathroom, which we didn't expect. Um, but he finally, um, all of a sudden, I see people looking over my shoulder. And I'm like, what are they looking at? Did I miss something? Is the eclipse happening? And he's standing back there the, um, the time. I don't know how long he was back there. But he was watching me. He just let me go. He just let me go with what I was saying. And uh, and I said, oh, you know, um, uh, he, he's back. So I'm going to hand him the microphone. And uh, I gave it back to him. And he said, you know, I almost didn't want to take the microphone away from you. You're doing such a great job. Give him a hand, right? So everybody claps. Now, this is a shy kid that had never really done any presentations in front of people before at all. Um, fresh, uh, still in college, actually. Uh, and But it taught me something very important. One, you are would be amazed at how much you actually know about a subject. Um, you may not give yourself credit for it because you're judging yourself by people who are PhDs who've studied this forever. But if you thought through some of the things you know and what you taught to people, what you could teach to people, you would be amazed by that. So that's what I got from that. Like everybody knows something they can teach. They can help one of these kids, whether it's cooking, cleaning, drawing, painting, building something, disassembling things, or just, you know, shooting a jump shot, whatever, you know, whatever it is, you know, go and teach. Teach somebody something every day. You don't have to be a teacher on paper. You don't have to work in a school, but share your knowledge with each other. Each one teach one is what I learned. Each one teach one. So that's what we're going to have to do to really overcome some of these challenges. But that's where I got my calling to teach. I did not want to go into education after my parents taught in the public schools. I was thinking, this is the last thing I want to do. You know, <laughs> I taught in tough areas in Douglas and in some and uh, in Inglewood and and play, neighborhoods like that. For those that have been to Chicago, um, you know, it, it's some tough neighborhoods is where they taught. And so I didn't want to be in education and an educator, but boy, it bit me hard, man. I I really felt it through my bones and my DNA um, because my great grandparent uh, father was a teacher, and so. That's important, you know, to kind of do what feels natural. That's how I got my calling and that's how I got here. You brought up quite a few things that brought up a, a lot of things in my mind about uh, the field of education. You just really touched on the the quintessential essence of teaching and learning. You know, that teacher put you in a position uh, to be successful. And uh, you're right, just absolutely just talking about it. That's how you learn it because you you. Uh, you take that information and you uh, you disassemble it and you put it back together and, and all of that. Um, I wanted to say about the black college experience. Um, there was one thing um, I took. I had some kids. It, it really took a lot to get these kids to a, a, a black college tour as a middle school, high mm -hmm. school, uh, a middle school principal. Uh, but we were able to put together a small um a small tour. We just went to Central State and, and um, the kids came back. I had one boy who was just one of the most 
active young man I've ever seen in my entire life. And he just had absolutely no ambition uh, with school. And I knew he was smart. He would do do well on his uh, uh, um, his standardized test well enough, not uh, superior, but well enough, especially for someone who wasn't always in school. That kid got a chance to go at, at Central State and he saw those cues and they were stepping down there and he saw those uh, young ladies going to the library and that looked like him. And like you said, they we have, we are not monolithic. We look different. We are not all Democrat. We're not all Republican. We're not all independent. Uh, we're not all Christian. We're not all Muslim. But we're, we've got all of these things going on. And to see a, a combination of extremely articulate different people that look like you it it provides you with strength and uh and courage and self-esteem uh that is unmatched i i i can't tell you how much i loved 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 going to a, a historically black college to see you know like you said they're shy shy men they're they're athletes and every and to see a whole bunch of black men that can't hoop. <laughs> everybody can't hoop, you know. But uh, you know, you watch TV, you think we all can. But uh, I'm here to tell you that's not the case. Uh, and then there was a story that it was a book that I read many, many moons ago that uh, illustrated uh, life, like you said, and it's by Nathan McCall. It makes me want to holler. And this young man is is someone who. Uh, was hanging out on the streets too and then uh, you know as life started to come up he decided that uh, he needed to go in a different direction and he he I mean he's blown up to be one of the most amazing authors uh, of our time so um, it, it just you just brought back uh, every time I talk to you, you just bring up a, a whole bunch of things that uh, make me excited about what what you're doing and 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 what we're doing all together and we've got to do more for our boys i i got one more question and i'm gonna lead into a real heavy piece uh and then i'm gonna get on out of here because you i know that you've got five thousand things going on uh you've got shoulder seats i i can see him uh you can't because this is just the audio podcast but his shoulders are massive because he's just carrying all this big stuff so um (laughs) <laughs> how yeah right how do we and you you answered the question but i, I like i said before i want to tunnel it a little bit more it's like so how how on earth are we going to find ways to encourage and motivate more students of color especially our boys to become more interested in math and science the girls are outpacing us right now uh, i'm asking this question uh, partly because i just recently got an email from someone from Tennessee State and they've got this program where they uh, partner with Meharry which is the medical college in uh, Tennessee and the program is for African American boys only and it is uh, a program that they had to create because they only have 10% uh, less than 10% black boys in the medical field right now Uh, so what what's happened? Why why are we going away from it? I when I turn on the TV, I see there are plenty of there more than than we need uh, black men playing basketball, but those not enough jobs in that. It's just not enough. 
and and those careers are very short. Uh, I see a whole bunch of black uh, young men playing football, uh, but uh, those careers are short, and and they, they you know they they come with uh, quite a few other hazards. How can we get them? And and this hands-on is like right down our alley. Like everything that you said, it's got to be down our alley. What do we have to do? You know, if I had that answer, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know what the, where this show would be broadcast all over the world if I could solve this problem. You know, but it's a really great question. And look, maybe what we could do, I didn't think about this before, but what we took of this from a scientific point of view, because that's not something we typically do as uh, in solving problems in our community. We don't always think about it from a scientific point of view. But what you described represent a lot of variables. Like, in other words, this is not just a one plus one equals two type of equation. Mm -hmm. And I think we've been under so much pressure as a people that we we argue like it's a barbershop type situation where, no, man, what's really going on is we need to, you know, and then dot, dot, dot. And then you fill in the blank. It doesn't even matter what the dude said, you know, because it's been discussed, whether it was Booker T. Washington discovered discussing it or uh, Dubois or... Um, or whoever it might be, uh, I think uh, the important thing is we're going to need to try and use everything we can, everything we can, almost like a mixed martial arts battle. You know, mm. you use everything from Taekwondo to, uh, you know, Krav Maga to uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, like whatever it takes. Mm -hmm. And I think that's not the mindset that we have. I think very often we start with a defeatist mindset about the difficulty uh, rather than the ease. Like if someone came to you and just said, you know what, next time this happens in an interview, say this, this, and this, and you'll be good. Don't worry about it. It's like it's like the kryptonite to racism. You know, like where is that? Where is that kryptonite to racism? <laughs> you know, and I think what it is though, it's in our spirit, it's in our soul. Because when you look at the trailblazers, not the people that didn't make it and said, man, you know, they so racist, you'll never be able to, well, that's them. That's not necessarily you mm -hmm. because the trailblazer that went and did something different, they, uh, a lot of times just never gave up. They just never gave up and never did they believe they couldn't do something or that they, that they shouldn't be allowed to do something. They had every right as much as anybody else. That's been a consistent message throughout all of our leaders, male and female, throughout time in this country since 1619. Mm -hmm. So I guess what I'm trying to figure out is, what happens to that? Or do we pass on a defeatist mindset that we can't achieve something? Or maybe we have goals that are unrealistic or goals that we think are important but are not really the goals you want to achieve. I mean, let's be honest. When you really want to achieve something yourself, what is that? When, when do you not get that done? I don't care if it's Christmas shopping. You know, you're like, man, I'm gonna find the right price on this blender. You know, you go all over. And when you finally get that blender, man, I got it for 20% off. And, uh, you know, that I, it's just such an accomplishment because you're on a mission. And you hear sometimes brothers say, man, I'm on a mission. Where's our mission? Mm. Or, or do we just, like I said, make complaints for COVID? Where is our mission? And that's what I think is more important. So when I teach these young kids, this is what I do. I'm not saying other people should do this. This is just what I do. I try not to get them wrapped into the fact that there's not many black people who are gonna major in physics. There's not many people who major in physics. 
I was, I mentioned to someone when I was at Morehouse, I said, I took this class called relativistic electrodynamics. It's, it's somewhere, but you know, like looking at how subatomic particles move around and then they're moving towards the speed of light. What happens to them, you know, um, relativistic electrodynamics. All right. Well, this is a tough class. There was only two people in this class, two people. And you, you know, you know that biology 101 class has got like 400 people in there. Right. This, right. This, is, this is just two people in that class because that's how many people are interested in pursuing this and physics at low. But I talked to another guy that went to a school, um, and uh, he 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 would identify as white. He he said, "Oh, you know, I was in a class. It was only just, you know, I had one class. There was only like three or four people in it." And I'm thinking he experienced the same thing that I did. Mm-hmm. You know, just because. You think, oh, this is just something that we're doing, and this is at, this is at a HBCU. Mm-hmm. You think that you're the only person affected by discrimination. I've been on so many interviews and things and meetings, you know, that you realize people get discriminated against all the time for all kinds of reasons. Mm-hmm. It just so happens when it happens to us, it happens in droves. You know, like it's at a level of difficulty that is usually much greater because the weight of society is on you. But it doesn't mean that the nature of the discrimination is that much different. All right. Well, that tells me that to some extent, um, some of the discrimination, I'm just saying, it's some of the discrimination we feel is an issue of volume or magnitude, not necessarily the direction. So the question is, can we build structures that can do things at that scale to overcome? And the answer is yes, because when you see people do the things that they do, starting their own businesses, you know, coming up, you look at what LeBron is doing. I mean, he's an inspiration, not because he's playing basketball. I don't even care about the basketball part of it. I mean, it's fun to see him play basketball. Don't get me wrong. Right, 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 right. right. However, it's more the fact of his determination and his ability to adapt. And not only did he adapt, he did that on like, what, three different teams? Yes. Three different teams. Three different teams. And, and open a school and and all of the other things. So he, I he, totally agree that he's, he's not a basketball player. Level. He's, he's a leader. He's not a yes. basketball player. He's a leader. If you can go to different organizations and achieve success, then you start to say, well, wait a minute. You know, it, it wasn't just he's not a system. You know, you think of a system quarterback shifting sports for a second. He's just a system quarterback, man. He just they do what he, he does, what they tell him to do. <laughs> Game manager, you know. But when you have somebody go to a different team, and that's what Tom Brady wanted, to use another sports analogy, he was like, I want to, you know, Peyton Manning, I got I got a lot of his records covered, but he actually went from the Colts, won a Super Bowl, went to Denver, won a Super Bowl. I haven't done that. He goes down to Tampa, and what does he do? Win a Super Bowl. Check. Mm-hmm. Check that off the list. Now he wants the perfect season. Is it greedy? Is it arrogant? Is it egotistical? Yes. But does it inspire the hell out of people? Absolutely. We need to look at these brothers that are doing it. Tell me what not to do and show me what to do. But I don't Oof. want to talk about all of this stuff about how they're not going to let you. I mean, really? Think about People won't do what what Muhammad Ali did today. Mm, they won't say right. the stuff he said today. Uh, Colin Kaepernick, bless his soul. Um, you know, he stood up, he did something. That was like nothing compared. That was like a Black History, you know, unit in February in a public school compared mm-hmm. to what Muhammad Ali stood up against at a time that was critical. Okay, over and over and over and over oh, and oh. over again. You're right, and and the sacrifice and the 
the thousands of dollars or millions of dollars in, in our um, uh, in, in our arena, I guess, in our era. Uh, you know, Muhammad Ali, he just he had he was un, unwilling to say that he was going to do anything different than what he wanted to do. And so I uh, totally agree with you on that. Yeah. And just to, just to add one other quick thing, speaking of Tennessee State, which incidentally was my dad's alma mater. He was a Tennessee State, very proud Tennessee State grad. I'll give you another Tennessee State grad, Oprah Winfrey. Now, Oprah is amazing. Like, I, I don't know that there's an analog. Like, there were other basketball players and other people. I don't know if there's an analog to Oprah. I really don't. I don't think about it. Maybe somebody in your, in your listening audience could give one. But she's like a thing onto herself and all the stuff that she did. And she never gave up on herself. She had confidence. And look at all the things she went through in her personal life. Yet she found a way to win. I mean, we make a lot of complaints. And you look at other people and, and it, it, doesn't, it, it looks easy. You don't know all the stuff that they do behind. But, you know, it was a funny thing about Oprah in Chicago. She had that last episode that was on Michigan Avenue. Mm-hmm. And remember when there was all those people out in the street and she had the, the episode out there, whatever. Well, there was a, a thing that came on after that episode was over. I think it was on a Friday. And uh, on Monday, the city of uh, of Chicago, I think, sent her a bill. I don't remember exactly how much it cost, <laughs> but I, I don't know if it was like $20 million. But it was it was a lot of money because they shut down the city. They needed security and whatever. And there, to do that, she had to pay the bill. Well, they sent her the bill in the morning, and that bill was paid that night. <laughs> like... <laughs> it was i mean it wasn't like okay i'm I'm gonna get to that around to that no she paid that bill and uh it just lets you know as a billionaire it lets you know what's possible yeah what can we do you know so i i just don't want to hear it i don't want to hear people say i can't do this because of racism i want you to do like COVID 19 and say that's not going to even make a difference after i get through doing what i'm about to do because you have to do that. I don't even know if it's possible what I just said, but the ancestors are telling you, you're going to have to do this because we didn't come all the way over here for you to sit around with a defeatist attitude. Oh, I love it. I we, absolutely your love Your parents it. not spend all this time working on you, feeding you when you're a kid and do that with a defeatist attitude. We have to do this. And if you don't have that attitude of positivity, go seek out someone who does. You know, a lot of times people think of a guru, you know, because we have all these fake gurus in this country that go around and, you know, do all these talks and stuff like that. And they're trying to sell you these books, tapes and videos, right? (laughs) Or subscribers in today's day and age. But I read a book by a guy that studied on a guru and he said, you know, my guru is the person that embodies the principle that I want to live by. Mm. And that's why I follow him. I never heard this before. I'm thinking this book about this guy. He's like, the book was like me and my guru, you know, the perfect relationship. That's what it was called. I'm reading this book and this guy's talking about this stuff. And I'm thinking, man, I, I, who is this Kool-Aid drinking dude that, you know, is <laughs> walking around following this guy, worshiping, worshiping everything he does. But when he said it in this way, I never heard it that way. He said that my guru is the human embodiment of the principle that I want to follow behind. Meaning my goal is not the guru. My goal is this principle. But if I want to follow this principle that I hold myself to, an idea, um, a statement, a concept, 
I need to look for someone that follows that principle. This is why role models, near peer mentors and things like that are so important because it's that principle. When you have a teacher that's just teaching right out of the book, they're not going to really be able to help you. When you have a teacher that has done something and has struggled through things, it's like, look, hey, I get it. I had struggles in math too, but here's how I overcame it. This is what I want to ask yourself. You can do this. That's the kind of teacher everybody needs. So if your life isn't going well, if you got challenges and, you know, hey, nothing against chance because sometimes bad things can just happen to good people, so to speak. However, you really need to change your teachers. <laughs> you need to, if you haven't gotten that big job you want, if you haven't done those things you want to be, or or maybe it's just staying in a relationship with your with your partner, your husband, wife, whoever, um, maybe you just need to get a new teacher. So for Teacher Appreciation Week, there's a lot of us out there and they might be able to help you. I may not be your teacher. I may not be able to show you what you can do. You may not even know your teacher. You don't know LeBron per, uh, personally. But that move that he did on Saturday night, I bet you <laughs> I bet you went on the court. I bet you went on the court on Sunday and tried to tried to do it. He taught you something. Learn it. Absolutely. Oh, wow. You had so many golden nuggets of, of knowledge in that uh in that last piece. I'm 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 almost speechless, which is really hard to do. Uh, I do want to lead into this last piece, and I know you've got to go. Uh, this has been a wonderful episode. I'm I'm like I said, I'm so glad to have you. Uh, I'm going to transition to this one piece and just ask one little question about it, and then just move on uh, with our day because I think you've answered quite a few questions. Uh, but the the piece that I have is uh, from the book post-traumatic slave syndrome america's legacy of enduring injury and healing by dr degroy uh be the healing and it's about uh tuskegee uh and i think what you just mentioned gives us a great uh a great landing point to get ready to uh hear this piece because i think you you kind of answered some things about well just getting up and doing it just do it mm -hmm. uh, so it, it says, seemingly in the tradition of J. Marion Sims, the United States government decided it was okay to run medical experiments on African Americans. From 1932 through 1972, the U.S. Public Service, Health Service used 399 African American men who were suffering from syphilis as a human laboratory as human laboratory animals in the medical experiment known as the Tuskegee syphilis study. The majority of the men were illiterate sharecroppers from Alabama who came to Tuskegee complaining of fatigue. Contrary to popular belief, the government did not give these men syphilis. They already had contracted, contracted it when they came to the Institute. After tests were run, they were told by doctors and nurses, people they were taught to trust, that they were being treated for a blood disorder. In fact, they were not being treated at all. They were mercilessly left to degenerate with syphilitic inflictions of paralysis, tumors, blindness, and insanity, inevitably resulting in death for many. It is detestable that doctors and institutions, both black and white, participated in this experiment. However, the fact that the United States government oversaw such 
and experiment is inexcusable and barbaric. Over 100 of the men died from syphilis during the study. A number of the unwitting participants passed the disease onto their spouses, and a few times their pregnant spouses in turn passed it on to their unborn infants. The study halted in 1972 only when a former public health service worker blew the whistle on the project. It is amazing to think that the study might still have gone on until the last participant died almost 30 years later had it not been for that one public health worker with a conscience. The study was purported to be a way of learning what effect syphilis had on the body. Unfortunately, this could only be determined post-mortem. In 1947, only 15 years after the experiment began, penicillin was discovered to be an effective cure for the disease. It was still withheld from the men for the next 25 years. Lynchings, raising homes, businesses, and medical experimentation. Imagine if the atrocities described above happened to your husband, wife, child, parent, sister, or brother, perhaps even your best friend. How would you handle it? It has been estimated that between 1866 and 1955, more than 10,000 African-American men, women, and children had been lynched Many thousands more had been murdered by other means, and untold numbers of women had been brutalized and raped. Add to this the tens of thousands of, uh, who received beatings at the hands of whites, many of which were handed out by the police, and it's easy to see that the end of slavery did not mean the end of trauma for black people. So I want to end with that and ask you, what are your thoughts about that? Well, one, I'll, I'll invoke uh, Dr. King um, in the speech that he made, uh, what is now called his I Have a Dream speech. But, you know, the opening part of that speech, the first half of it, he describes similar things and, and says, uh, but 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. And what he was meaning by that is as much as things change, the more sometimes they stay the same. What it means is that we haven't, I think, is that we, we haven't really dealt with the root of the issue. It's like we put a Band-Aid on things, but we don't really deal with the issue. <clears throat> but, you know, our lives are experimental. You know, we are the innovators. We are in the Petri dish a lot of times. And it doesn't mean that we're the only people in there because you look at other countries right now with some things that are going on where there's ethnic cleansing and people are, you know, being you know, put in concentration camps and other kinds of things. And you would think that these horrible things from Holocaust to diasporas to, um, you know, challenging things that middle passage um, events that we would learn as a society, but there's something more fundamental about our greed, about our desire to be in power, mm. about our just fundamental fear of arrival. You know, I don't know how far it goes back, but 65 million years ago when 
the asteroid impacted the Earth and what we describe as killing off the dinosaurs. And that KT boundary layer of iridium that you know represents that event. <clears throat> and the impact happened somewhere in the Yucatan Peninsula that the scientists have studied that for years to try to understand more about these kinds of impacts and how they change mass extinction events um, come from them and and change who we are. Well, that event helped to create an environment for you know mammals to rise to the prominence that they have now and produced early hominids and people like us as homo sapiens sapiens um but still in that we're still kind of afraid of the dark and we're still worried about being eaten and even when we look at our neurological system um we have like the uh what what is the, the brain stem kind of almost like a I, I won't describe it as a lizard brain but that kind of thing then there's the cere cerebellum that is motor control represents another part of the evolution of our nervous system and then the cerebrum you know the two hemispheres where we do a lot of our complex higher order thinking we got we got and this is not even counting the amygdala and other kinds of things that are inside of our endocrine system that's connected to our brain but you know there's a lot of different people uh inside of us sometimes we feel because there's a lot of different parts of our personalities that have to do with just our biology just our genetics that make us who we are but we haven't been able to overcome that through thought and recognize that there's a more powerful existence for us awaiting us if we're less discriminatory less power hungry less greedy and all these other things and many religions and societies have tried to deal with this and create opportunities even the experiment that's called the united states of america was supposed to eliminate the king you know so but yet you know how can you have a king without subjects so uh we're in a situation where somebody needs subjects we need somebody on the bottom i think in order for society to work because then you don't worry so much about how much somebody else is getting paid you're more worried that you're not at the bottom so pushing somebody else down uh is a way to keep you in the position you're in in the middle class or the upper middle class or even if you're in a, a lower um, economic situation you still want to be the king of that space this is this is deeper than black and white um, this is deeper than asian or mexican this is deeper than whether someone is a, a jew a gentile a muslim it has to do with how we relate to each other as human beings mm. unfortunately though when you walk it down the street, you can you can label a particular type of person as something and put them in all the classifications and categories that you want to be immediately, um, even assuming assigning guilt to them for something they didn't even do. Mm -hmm. And this is how you get pulled over. This is how you get discriminated against in the interview. This is why you can't really be yourself even in a boardroom, right? Um, when I look at Tuskegee, and, and I know uh, a little bit about this because when you um, do an experiment um, and research at the college level, especially in graduate school, so for my doctorate, I have to go through something called IRB. IRB is an internal review board at a university that, that reviews the experiments that you're going to do, and they want to make sure that nobody is harmed. And you know why they want to do that? is because of things like Tuskegee. As a matter of fact, when you take the exam or the, the assessment that you have to take 
to make sure that you understand how important internal review is. It's all these cases of things where people have been experimented on, whether it's the HeLa cells um, of uh, someone's genetic material being used for purposes that that aren't and um, you know uh, that they didn't agree to, to Tuskegee, which is the which is the the most egregious act of of willful negligence, almost. It's it's almost like in a Nazi kind of um, diabolical evil type of way mm-hmm. um, for what they did and for people to be complicit in that, um, knowing that they could treat someone, it goes against the Hippocratic oath. Um, it goes against everything that you can imagine, and yet we accept it. Why? Because it's almost like society wants to believe that we deserve to be treated like this. We deserve this treatment. That's what people think. So much to the fact that when something happens to someone completely innocent, you got you digging up something to try to find, well, I don't know, the guy got a bad grade in fourth grade. That must be the reason why they had to react in this way. You know, it's it's insane. It's insane. So when I hear this, um, uh, these kinds of things happen today, and Tuskegee is a perfect example that go throughout history as something not to do. But unfortunately, the sad part about it is, you know, speaking of making America great, black people actually make America great. But it's over our dead bodies. It's over the, the body mm-hmm. lives of these kids, because you know what's gonna happen? After these things happen, things are gonna be a lot better for everybody. But guess who had to make that, who had to sacrifice? <laughs> and it's not just us, it's other people, but guess who had to sacrifice, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to get there? So there's going to be a lot of interesting things that are going to happen over the next 10 years. A lot of rights are going to be restored. A lot of opportunity is going to be available for people. And you know who paid for that? George Floyd. Yes. I, I mean, I hate to say it, but it's true, guys. You know, we have to admit it and just call it like it is we end up being the reason why something gets changed. Now, what an honor, right? Because we can help to make life better, but we shouldn't carry that burden. We, we, we should be able to appreciate the fruits of freedom. If anybody deserves freedom, is it not us? You know, and yet it's denied every step of the way in most cases. But what's even worse is the mind forged manacle part of it, Carter G. Mm. Wood, of the, you know, on the cover of that book, uh, The Miseducation of the Negro, the, it, it's so apropos. They got a, a person on there, I think it's a young woman, that basically has a manacle with a lock on her, on her head. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not looking at the feet and, you know, the roots of salsa da- dancing and Afro-Caribbean dance. You know, you do that little shuffle. That's because people had chains on their feet, man. That's the only way they could dance. We developed that dance from from the breaking camps in the uh, in the islands. Uh, but but it's the mental slavery that we are under that's the worst because that means people don't even have to do anything. You're gonna carve a back door straight out of that book. You're gonna carve a back door for yourself to go through because you think that's your identity. We have to change our identity. Marvin, what you're saying is right. As teachers, we need to teach ourselves that we can do more things. I don't want to be the experiment that some, you know, that, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to teach people to avoid that kind of thing as an educator. 
But inevitably, we end up carrying that burden. We have to break the cycle. We have to break it by looking in the mirror. We have to find the key. And if you're going to break into something, if you're going to, you know, pick a lock, pick the lock on the lock on your brain and unlock your potential. And that's what we need to do as a community and help each other do it. Thank you so much. I couldn't say anything uh, on top of that. You just, that was the cherry on top. Uh, I'm going to end with that. That was just absolutely amazing. I'm also going to go ahead and, and hold you accountable to coming back because I think we need to delve into some more things outside of the Science Center. Uh, you are absolutely a, a brilliant, uh, educated mind. And uh, I just, I think we've got to definitely uh, take it out to the field and, and let more young men uh, hear that wonderful voice. I know you're doing so much, but I, I think we can do even more let's if you're willing. Uh, let's do it together. Uh, Marvin, right. it's good to be on with you. I love your show, man. And, and uh, let, let's just keep it rolling. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care and have a wonderful week this week. Happy Teacher Appreciation Week. I think we might have had in this week uh, Cinco de Mayo. I think it's Mother's Day. I think we also got uh, make sure you go ahead and vote. You got to vote for the Michigan uh, Science Center. And like yes. I said, I'll have that link available in this uh, in this uh, episode also. So thank you. Take care. I look forward to you uh, listening. And I will see you soon on Say It Loud. God bless. Be black. Be black.